So let's, uh, let's zero in uh, for a moment on page 16, if you're using your notes, uh, on page 16. I gave you a chart that compares the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Because in chapter 8, which is where we are right now, chapter 8 the, is the major introduction in the book of Hebrews to the idea or the concept of the New Covenant. So if you, does everybody see where I am in terms of your notes? You have this chart reproduced, okay? It's on page 16. Yeah, it should be, huh? Page 18? I must have an older edition of your notes. Okay, but it looks like this, all right? So um, if you have your notes, you might want to, or if you don't have them with you, just make a note to look at that. But I'll be referring to that in just a moment because if you look, on the right-hand side is the New Covenant. On the left-hand side is the Old Covenant. And just another name for the Old Covenant is the Law, or sometimes called the Mosaic Covenant. And, man, honestly, if you understand, by the time we're done with all this, if you understand this chart to, to, to a degree, if you understand it, you understand something that a lot of Christians don't understand. Because to understand the Old Testament, you have to understand the Old Covenant. To understand the New Testament, you have to understand the New Covenant. Because Jesus makes all the difference. And that's why in the middle of the chart, the little series of rectangles, is what Jesus did in fulfilling the old and inaugurating the new. So does that language make sense to you, what I just said? Because Jesus is the reason why we have a New Covenant. So as we're studying this, again, refer you to that, and if you don't have it with you, you might want to make note to see that or, or bring it with you next week. But I want to pick up on um, in, in chapter 8, I want to pick up with verse 6 again, and, and ex- that look extensively at what um, the author of Hebrews does in quoting from Jeremiah 31, because really all, verse 8 through verse 12 is just a quote uh, from Jeremiah 31, so we'll get to that in a minute. So, everybody following what I'm doing here? So, the author says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant, or the new covenant. He mediates. What verse is that? I'm in verse uh, 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Key word is better. The new is better than the old. Why? Because Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. You understand what mediator means, don't you? Okay. Continuing then. For if that first covenant had been faultless, without fault, there was no problem with it, there wouldn't have been no occasion to look for a second, meaning the new covenant. For, verse 8, he finds fault with them when he says, all right, what does does he find fault with? The old covenant. What, What could the old covenant not do that the new covenant can do? That's what he's about to explain. I'll say that sentence again. What could the new covenant do that the Old Covenant could not do. So, I mean, that's what he's about to, 
That's what he's about to explain to us. So in doing that, he quotes from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, which is verse 8 through verse 12. By the way, this is more of an aside than anything else, but Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 through 31, is another Old Testament uh, reference for the new covenant. In both cases, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, both of these prophets are writing to Judah, the southern kingdom, which had been taken into exile. And this was, uh, oh, a terribly hopeless condition for these Jewish people going into exile, at least seemingly hopeless. But what Jeremiah does and what Ezekiel does is gives them hope. God, another way of putting it, God is not done with you yet. God is not finished with you, Jewish people. He has a covenant with you. And he's going to usher in a new covenant. And so uh, Jeremiah, I mean, it's, if you've ever studied Jeremiah, to have this passage near the end of the book of Jeremiah is one that just filled with a lot of hope. And the same with Ezekiel. So let me read now. I'm going to read the entire quotation that the author has for us, and we're going to go back and kind of take it apart. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. Now, if you underline or mark your Bible or whatever, that you ought to underline or circle. There is a new covenant. So if something's new, it implies that there's something deficient with the old, right? If you buy a new car, it's because there's something wrong with the old one. Or whatever. You know, I think you understand my point. But I want you to notice something else. New covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. That's a very important prepositional phrase. Because Jeremiah is writing to Judah, which is the southern nation. You remember when Solomon died in 930? B.C., the kingdom split. And the ten tribes of the north became Israel, the two tribes of the south became Judah. When did the kingdom of Israel go out of existence? In 722 B.C. The kingdom of Israel, when Jeremiah is writing this, it's 586 B.C. So the, the northern kingdom is out of existence. They've been dispersed, they've been conquered. But the, the God says, with both house of Israel and house of Judah, all Jews... Not just Judah. Do you understand what I just said? The new covenant is for all Jews, not just Judah. Not like continuing in verse nine, not like the old not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. He's simply referring to in verse nine, Mount Sinai. And they'd come out of Egypt and down to Mount Sinai, and there they got the law. Remember Cecil B. DeMille's movie, Moses, up on the mountain, the people are down at the base of the mountain. So that's, that's when God's giving them the old covenant, the old law. Verse 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. So here's the new covenant. Here are the parts of the new covenant. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. 
They shall not teach either each one his neighbor, each one his brother, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least to the greatest, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, I will remember their sins no more. So you have three aspects of the covenant. Aspect number one, God's going to put his law, his moral law, in their minds and their hearts. He's going to internalize it. Number two, verse 11, there's going to be an intimacy about the relationship. God says, there will be no need to teach one another to know the Lord because they will all know me. And the, the, the Greek word for he, know there is translating the Hebrew word yada, which is an intimate knowledge. This isn't just factual knowledge. This is an intimate, personal knowledge of God. And then thirdly, God will remember their sins no more. That's different, isn't it? Because in the old covenant, they constantly had to atone for their sins through the sacrifices. Not with the new covenant. That's where the author is going with this. Jesus' sacrifice is a once for all. So God is going to be able, because of the finished work of Jesus, which is what we're going to get to in chapter 9, the finished work of Jesus, he'll deal with sin forever. It will no longer need atonement because of the once-for-all atonement of Jesus. Yeah, I, uh, last week uh, I was talking to Lyle about that. I read that where it said that there would be no need. Uh, they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. I had a little trouble with that. I was trying to figure out when that happened, and we wondered if it was during the rapture or what it was. But when, there'd be no argument, and everybody would know about Jesus. Um, but, but. Uh, well, that's that's really a good question. Remember, initially, this is written for the Jewish people, and so yes, it would be wrapped around the return of Jesus. Because this is this will not be fulfilled in its completeness until Christ returns. The second time, the first advent was for his crucifixion and resurrection and all that. The second advent is when he will come back and establish. We're going to see people going to Jesus. That's right. Right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And I mean, this is and this is addressed first to the Jewish people, then the church. The church participates in the new covenant again because of, of what Christ did. And that's, I want to talk a little more about that when we go through communion or the Lord's table or the Eucharist or whatever your church tradition calls it. You have, the pastor usually says, This is, this bread, this is my body, which is for you, broken for you, whatever the language he uses. Then he takes a cup. This is the cup of the new covenant, which is in my blood. That's quoting from when Jesus in the upper room. And the key phrase there is new covenant. Jesus is in the upper room as he talks to his disciples and then by extension the church wants us to understand that the shedding of his blood on the cross at Calvary inaugurates the new covenant. And that makes sense because of what we have been reading about the old covenant where the shed blood of the lamb and so on atones for sin 
this is, and that's where he's headed in chapter 9, which is a fabulous chapter. That Christ's sacrifice was once for all. It's completed. We no longer have to do these things. So the author is really quoting again from Jeremiah 31, very similar to what is in Ezekiel 36. A new era is coming. A new order is coming. And that new order is where God is going, and this is God doing this. It's not you and I doing it. It's God doing it. We'll put his moral law in our hearts. In other words, we will desire to obey him. And secondly, there's going to be an intimacy with God that, that is almost incomprehensible for you and me. And thirdly, because of what Jesus does, he will remember their sins no more. Sin is no longer going to be the barrier between God and humanity, because of what. But every, I mean, everybody has to accept this and appropriate this by faith. And if they don't, then they face the, the, the judgment of God, which is not the point he's, he's making here. So again, three items. Does that make sense to you? Now, if you were a Jew. And remember, uh, let's go to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is written while Nebuchadnezzar's armies are crashing through the northern walls of Jerusalem. I mean, it's, it's, when you study the book of Jeremiah, it's absolutely astonishing. He keeps saying, it's not too late to repent, even as Nebuchadnezzar's armies are breaking down the walls in the northern part of Jerusalem. It's not too late. Repent. And, and they don't do it, of course. But then as this all, as they go into captivity... Jeremiah issues this new covenant, chapter 31. And you're, you're a Jew and you're reading this, you would shake your head. Really? This is what's coming? Yes. This is the promise God has made to you. And they've been taught the other way for all their lives. Yes. That's why, and, and if, if you have Jewish friends, you've perhaps experienced this, that's why the best way to approach a Jewish person in terms of getting them to think about Jesus and the gospel and so on, is the new covenant. It really is. Because you talk about the new covenant, assuming they know something about the Old Testament, they're going to know what you're talking about. That's not a foreign phrase to them. You don't have to explain that. No, that's what I mean. They should understand. I mean, I've already quoted from Jeremiah 31, this is what God has promised you. Oh, yeah, that's right. Jesus did this for you. No, he didn't. He's not my Messiah. <laughs> Wrench their neck or something. But it's, it, is, it is the key inroad for a Jewish person to start thinking differently about Jesus. But, you know, that's always hard. All right, any questions then about what, now what the author is going to start doing is now developing this whole idea of the new covenant. He's introduced it to us. Now he's going to start developing in chapters 9 and 10. So this was all future to the Jews, to whom he was writing. That's correct. But for us, is there a current and future element as well? Yes, yes. Again, because uh, that is, is what Jesus does there in, in the Gospels in the upper room, and then what the uh, disciples do in the book of Acts, is this all applies to the church too. We are a, let, let me put it another way. We are able to participate in the new covenant because the blessing of salvation 
is what was promised to Abraham. In you, all the nations will be blessed. And so with the blessing of salvation comes our right as Gentiles to participate in the benefits of the new covenant. And that is just an amazing, it's fulfilling what God said to Abraham. But Abraham would not have understood, I I don't think he would have, would not have understood the details of this. But you and I do. And we are able to participate in it um, uh, with the finished work of Jesus. And a really neat, it's beyond what we're studying now, but a really neat example of this is in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22 where Paul details how we as Gentiles can participate in the blessings of the new covenant. It's quite, it's quite wonderful. Again, and that he wraps it all around that because the first nine verses of chapter 2 in Ephesians, the focus is on the grace of God. For by grace, through faith, you're saved, not of works, lest same man should boast, etc. Then he is, and here, here's where you used to be, you Gentiles. Here's where you are now. And we are able to participate in the blessings of the new covenant. It's Ephesians 2, what? Um, 2, 11 through 22. Where Jew and Gentile share equally in new covenant blessings. That's the theme of that paragraph. It's a wonderful paragraph. All right, got it? Key, three key elements of the new covenant based on Jeremiah 31. He just quoted it. Again, I want to say this one more time. He's introducing the New Covenant idea to us. He's going to start explaining it in detail in chapters 9 and 10 for us. This verse 13, close it all out. In speaking of a New Covenant, he, and the he there is God, makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. (laughs) For a Jewish person to read that, the old is obsolete. Now, if, if your car is obsolete, it doesn't mean it was bad or evil. Or it was a good car. You know, I don't know maybe some of you. Peggy and I run our cars about 130,000 miles. Then we sell them. But, I mean, it's not obsolete until I mean, you get 130. You're all of a sudden facing major expenses, you know. Should we put a whole new rebuilt engine in? You know, no, we'll get a new car. So it's just, it's nothing wrong with it. It's just obsolete. Why is it obsolete? Because Jesus completed everything. You don't need it anymore. It isn't that it was bad. It's just not needed anymore because of what Jesus did. That's what he's going to say for us in detail in chapter 9. And he, he even says it's growing, it's ready to vanish away. <laughs> the law is ready to vanish away. The Ten Commandments are still needed and necessary. That's that's just a good clarification. He's talking here about the ceremonial law, not the moral law. Is there any other law that was salvaged besides the Ten Commandments? Well, uh, all all that each one of those moral laws, all all that that involved law. I mean, um, I'm not explaining that very well. Each one, like for example, let's just take this one. Uh, you shall not murder, which is the real way that should be translated. That's a principle. That's an ethical principle that helps us to understand from God's perspective, God's character, human life is sacred. Now that is a very broad ethical principle for you and me. 
It's not just the idea that premeditated murder is wrong, but it establishes something because he anchors that in, we're created in the image of God. So that becomes a major ethical principle. Uh, you shall not lie. Well, that means I, I don't lie, but it, it says, I turn it into a positive, the sanctity of truth. So therefore, truth becomes a major ethical principle that guides our, our life. But you're right, it's, this is not referring to the moral law of God. This is referring to the ceremonial law of God. So if you stop and think back, God gave those laws, the Ten Commandments, to Moses, engraved in stone, stone being represented permanence. That's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, that, the moral law, the, and I, when I've taught this, I refer to it as it really reflects the moral character of God. It's part of what he means when he says, I want you to be holy as I'm holy. Where's a good starting point for that? The ethical principles of the Ten Commandments. So, so what you're talking about is the sacrifices. And the ceremonial, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So where's the other Levitical type stuff where you got to replace the guy's ox or um, Jubilee or the, the, after so many years you free the slaves? You free the slaves. Where, is, where do those elements fall into? Each... One of those, now, um, well, each one of those is really a further illustration of what each one of those Ten Commandments is the moral law of God, how that works out in in, in your life, how that works out as a Jew in ancient Israel before Christ, how that influences everything you do. So the um, after, when the Jubilee seven-year period ends, all slaves are freed, and you start over again. You know, that ties back to the sanctity of human life and the, the, the sanctity of valuing a human being as of worth and value so that slavery, for a lot of reasons, people could go in and out of slavery, not quite like the American South before the Civil War. But So you're treating that person, even though the person's a slave, you're treating that person with dignity. And you're giving them a chance to start over again. That was unheard of in any other civilization in the ancient world. I'm using that just as an illustration. Now, don't boil a kid in its mother's milk is a, is a reflection of the ceremonial kosher laws, which once Christ comes and fulfills his work, the kosher laws are no longer needed. That's what Peter was to learn in Acts 10 with the vision. You know, the kosher laws come to an end. Did I see another hand? Rob, are you with me? Yes. How are you enjoying Mary's life? Just great. Good, good. I keep asking you and Glenn to make sure it's still okay. All right. Fantastic. All right. All right, now, we've introduced the new covenant. Is everybody with me? Yes. Because if you're not with me, you need to make sure you're with me. So what he starts to do now, and that, I I would ask you to get this handout, uh, I wanted to use something that is as simple as you can possibly imagine it. And so this is the one I've chosen. So just make sure you get this. Yeah, I mean, there are no details to this. What you have is just a very, very base, basic overview of the tabernacle. And actually, it would also be the temple. You know what I mean? It's very simple. But you have the holy place, and then you have the most holy place. And the holy place, you can see this up here. You have a little line 
that has veil. Now, obviously, that would cover that, but this veil is what separated the most holy place from the holy place. The most holy place had one, one thing in it. It was the Ark of the Covenant. That's the only thing that was in the holy, most holy place. Whereas the holy place had three pieces of furniture. So you walk, if you walk into the holy place on your right would be the, the showbread. It would be a table with the showbread, 12 pieces of bread. On your left would be a menorah, which was uh, kept burning by olive oil in each one of those little. And then in front of you, right in front of the veil, was a, uh, an incense uh, burner. It, and it, it, so it burned incense, and that symbolizes the prayers of God's people. So it, just think about that for a moment. What did Jesus say? I am the bread of life. Showbread. I am the light of the world. The menorah. Ask anything of me, and it shall be done for you. Be incense. So it's just, it, you can see why in Christ all of these things are fulfilled. So that's what the author is going to do. So the first couple of verses of chapter 9, he's going to remind us, and remember the people, the first people to read this are Jews, so he's going to remind them of how the old system worked. Then he's going to say, okay, now that has been fulfilled. Here's how the new system works. You follow me? So what is he doing? He's beginning to explain now the details of the new covenant. So now he's going to just review the old covenant. Now, even the first covenant, Mosaic covenant, old covenant, had regulations for worship, see Leviticus, (laughs) and an earthly place of holiness, tabernacle, later the temple. For a tent, this would be referring to the tabernacle, was prepared. The first section in which was the lampstand. I'm just, just referring to this. The lampstand, if you're walking into, into the, the holy place, on your right would be, or on your left would be the lampstand, the menorah. On your right would be the table and bread of presence. Okay? It's called the holy place. Verse 3, behind it, uh, behind, my pages are out of sequence here, excuse me. I can't find page 2374, we're in trouble. I think we're in trouble because I can't find it. I, this, this is unbelievable that I don't have page 2374. I have all this. I don't believe this. What happened to page 2374? Here it is. Okay. Behind the second curtain was the second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Now, in the picture that I've given you there, you can see the Ark. This is the Ark of the Covenant. And it's really hard to see this, but they are to symbolize the two cherubim that were made out of gold that hovered over the Ark of the Covenant. So what was in the Ark? What was in that box? 
That's really what it was. He just told us what was in them. Three things. Golden urn containing manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. What's the tablets of the covenant? The Ten Commandments. So that was inside the box. That was inside the Ark of the Covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And that's what this tries to symbolize. We, we really don't know what the cherubim looked like. But the assumption is they would have had wings, and that's just how they're depicted. Because in the book of Exodus, it says the wings of the two cherubim touch. So that's how they're trying to depict it. Have I lost you? Do you understand? This is just a depiction in the simplest form I could find, a depiction of the elements to which he's referring here in uh, his description of the old. Okay? So again, he's just saying, now remember the old covenant. The old covenant had rituals of worship associated with two things. The holy place, you walk in, to your right's the bread, to the left is is the uh, menorah, the, the light, and to the center is the ark of incense. And on the other side of a curtain was the most holy place, one piece of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant. And over the Ark of the Covenant were two cherubim. They were made out of little statues, really. But the cherubim, and what was in the box? What was in the Ark? Well, three things. A cup of manna, that was from the wilderness wandering when God provided food for them. The the, uh, Aaron's staff that budded, and then the Ten Commandments itself. I have read another version of the Bible when I read this and it talked about Aaron's staff as once being alive. Is that what they mean by budded? Aaron's staff that budded uh, was once a, a live branch? Or well, yeah. I mean, it, 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 it budded with um, uh, leaves and so on to indicate, yes, that's correct. That's correct. Right. Aaron's staff was, all I remember is the uh, movie, The Ten Commandments, <laughs> Moses. Of course, Steve that's Moses. so accurate biblically in every phase. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But I mean, it's a, it's a great movie. <coughs> Cecil B. DeMille, it's a that's, great movie. That's why I'm here. Okay, so there, there is a biblical basis for Moses throwing down the staff and it turns into a serpent. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Is that the same staff? Is that a different staff? What is, what, what, what in, that, in that context, it is Aaron's staff that they cast down in, in front of the uh, sorcerers of Pharaoh. That's, that's correct. In Exodus, I think it's Exodus uh, chapter 6 and 7. Absolutely. That is Aaron's staff. And then eventually Aaron's staff devours, <laughs> which becomes a serpent, devours the serpents of the, of, of the Egyptian sorcerers. But that's right. That would be the staff that Aaron used as he led Israel into Canaan. No. Right. All right, I'm, I'm, I'm understanding your question. The staff in the ark yes. would have been Aaron's staff that he used as he led the people into, into Canaan. Uh, uh, you mean after Moses dies? After Moses yeah. Probably so. That's a good question. Um, I, I think that would be. I think that would be accurate. I think that would be accurate. It, it's symbolic, but it, it just kind of clicks. It. Yes. Yes. It would be a, a very, very important. Well, yeah. E, I mean, each one was to just symbolize 
something that God, that illustrates something that God had done to protect and care for his people. He provided food for them in their 40 years of wandering the manna. The leadership that Aaron's staff symbolized, and then, of course, the Ten Commandments, God's moral moral law. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the ark, there was nothing magical about the ark, contra Indiana Jones. There's nothing magical about the ark. And quite frankly, in all probability, the ark was destroyed uh, during Nebuchadnezzar's invasions. Either the Jewish leadership destroyed it or Nebuchadnezzar's armies destroyed it, wanting the gold. There's just absolutely no evidence, despite what one priest in Ethiopia says, I have the ark in my church. <laughs> There's just no evidence, there really isn't, that the ark survived. The only, and I'm going down a bunny trail here, and I'm going to quickly get out of it, but the only possibility is that uh, the Jewish leadership, the high priest, in other words, perhaps Sanhedrin, buried the ark under the Temple Mount. Uh, you know, in 586, when Nebuchadnezzar's armies were ravaging Jerusalem. That is a possibility. Um, because today, one of, the, one of the things that the, the Israeli Antiquities Authority would like to do is excavate under Temple Mount. But remember, well, maybe you don't know this or maybe you forgot it, but when Israel defeated the three powers in the 1967 war, they did something absolutely magnanimous. No one expected them to do that, but they did. Moshe Dayan went to the Arab leaders in, of the Palestinians and the country of Jordan and said, we will now give Temple Mount to you to administer it. We will police it. Because we are controlling Jerusalem, we will never give Jerusalem back. But we're going to allow Temple Mount to be open and have access to Jews, to Muslims, and to Christians equally. And so we're going to establish a foundation run by the government of Jordan. You administer it. Well, that foundation will not allow the Jews to excavate under Temple Mount. They forbid that. And all Israel, if Israel wants to start the next war, start excavating under Temple Mount. And that will start the next war. I mean, that's how volatile that issue is. So I said that, that the only possible, and very strict Orthodox Jews believe that the Ark is buried under Temple Mount. So what's preventing that? Just spite? That's probably a good word, spite. Just because? Well, see, Glenn, the one thing the Palestinians do not want is increasing historical evidence that Jerusalem belongs to the Jews. They, they will not, I mean, Yasser Arafat, before he died, forbid the Palestinian territories to, in any textbook for any teacher to ever say or teach or instruct the kids that Israel, Jews, one time owned Jerusalem. And that Jerusalem is the capital of David's empire. They forbid that to be taught. Because they do not want, Yasser Arafat absolutely refused to ever acknowledge that Jerusalem belonged to the Jews. He said it's historically a fable. It's made up. It's not true. If, if he had met Donald Trump back then, he'd call it fake news. He said, I mean, he just, he just absolutely denied it. 
And I remember reading in 2000 when Bill Clinton brought Yasser Arafat and Ahud Barak to Camp David, trying to force them to, to finalize a treaty. They, you know, they didn't do it. They didn't agree on it. But the major barrier was Yasser Arafat because the requirement was in that proposed treaty, you must acknowledge the Jewish sovereignty over Jerusalem. He, would, he refused to do that. He said they have no right to Jerusalem. There's no historic claim they have, despite the enormous amount of evidence to the contrary. Jim, so that's a long answer to your question, but that's... Uh, I have one more. Oh, yeah. it's, a, it's an observation. Uh, just before we go to verse 6, it says of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And here we are asking you to speak in detail about it. <laughs> well, don't don't stumble over that. All he's saying is, I don't need to say anything more in detail about this, the, because you already know what I'm talking about. All right. Remember, he's writing to Jewish people, right. so I don't need to say anything more in detail about this. You already know that. Okay. That's all that means. All right. Jim, uh, you had. Yeah, I want to. I was thinking about this. I'm reading through the Old Testament. Good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, you know, you just finished the, the story about how the Jews came in and they, they dispossessed all of the tribes and organizations that were in there that were presumably were Arab or somehow the, the ancestors of the Palestinians today. So, I mean, there is some, I suppose, some historical argument to be made that the Jews were not the original proprietors of Jerusalem. Okay, I want to make one well, this is that's a great observation, uh, great point. Canaanites are not Arabs. The Arabs at the time of the conquest under Joshua lived south of Edom. In other words, um, in what today would be the desert area that goes all the way down to the Gulf of Aqaba and out to the Red Sea. They that's where the Arabs come from. And will inhabit then the Bedouin tribes of Arabia, and Muhammad will come from one of the Bedouin tribes in the 600s. Um, so, and, and that's a, that's a very important observation. But there's one thing that's important: Canaanites are not Arabs, and the Palestinians are Arabs. So, their claim, Jim, their claim to Jerusalem—that is, the Arab claim to Jerusalem—does not exist. There are no Arab claims to Jerusalem a thousand BC when David establishes control over Jerusalem and makes it the capital of his kingdom. Uh, there are no Arabs in, in they're Jebusites, and Jebusites are Canaanites. They're not Arabs. The Canaanites, and there are, most of the Canaanites were extinguished during the conquest. Those that survived did intermarry with a lot of Jews. That's what Ezra and Nehemiah are upset about if you've, if you've read their books. So, um, Jim, the claim that for the Arabs historically to precede the Jewish claim to Jerusalem is a non-existent claim. Historically, it does not exist. I kind of troubled by all of that in the I mean, that's why the Arab population of any of the countries, including even Egypt, which is pretty friendly with Israel right now, 
They do not want to. They do not want to acknowledge the historic claim of the Jewish people to Jerusalem. Because see, the Arabs don't conquer Jerusalem until about 695 A.D. after Muhammad dies, and that that first caliph is the one who conquers Jerusalem, and then acknowledges. Well, in in one of Muhammad's visions, the it's, it's called Al-Aqsa, the northernmost. That's what's in the Quran. There is no mention of Jerusalem in the Quran. That's Jerusalem. How do you know it? It's Jerusalem. I decree it's Jerusalem. And from that point on, the Al-Aqsa is Jerusalem. Even though there's no historic claim to that, and it isn't even mentioned in the Quran. And so, uh, I mean, it just... If you were Satan... And you want to continue to sow discord in that part of the world. What's the most important piece of real estate to form a lot of contention about? Jerusalem. <laughs> and that's been successfully done. It's that 39-acre block called Temple Mount, the most controversial piece of real estate on planet Earth. I mean, it's just, it's awful. That's what Crusades were all about. Um, what Rome did under uh, Hadrian to Jerusalem. Uh, I mean, it's just... Uh, I forget the exact number, but I think Jerusalem has been conquered. I think I'm right on this. Jerusalem has been conquered 23 times in history. It's been burned of those 20, it's been burned about 17 of those 23 times. I mean, it's just layers and layers and layers of destruction and conquest. Thank you. But well, for us to move our embassy to Jerusalem, yeah, it really symbolically it was. That was a very significant thing. Uh, you know, Trump had promised to do that when he was running for the presidency, and uh, to, to do that, that meant a great deal to the Jewish uh, state of Israel. That the President of the United States has recognized Jerusalem as the capital. Few other nations have followed, but most nations don't acknowledge that. They still have their embassies in Tel Aviv, but uh, you know, that was a big deal. Yeah, sure, no, please. Does the Shekinah glory still dwell in the temple here in this period that we're talking about right now? Uh, you, you mean the writing of the book of Hebrews? No, well, when... Jeremiah? Jeremiah uh, yeah, uh, yes, yes. But uh, you you look at the... Uh, okay, no, wait a minute. Um, well, it would depend on where we are in Jer- Jeremiah. By the time when Nebuchadnezzar is conquering and destroying Jerusalem, no, it's gone. In the book of Ezekiel, in the book of Ezekiel, those first uh, about 10 chapters, it charts the departure of the Shekinah glory from Jerusalem. It departs from the temple to the, uh, to the eastern gate, and from the eastern gate to the Mount of Olives, from the Mount of Olives to, to the Dead Sea, and that's gone. I mean, it, it's really neat how God does that. Because you have not been faithful to me, my glory will no longer be manifested in your capital. And it just chart. It moves from, from the most holy place to the eastern gate, from the eastern gate to the Mount of Olives. Mount of, and so this should kind of, and that's the early chapters of Ezekiel. So that would be 597 BC is when Ezekiel is taken to, uh, to Babylon. So that's probably about the, the date for that. That's a great question. Nobody's ever asked me that question before. That's a really good question. All right, may I go on? Is everybody with me? I know there were some great questions there, but Bunny Trail, but I love Bunny Trails. 
Yeah, no, I, I mean, I really do, so keep asking them. But So you have the, you have the old ritual now, verse 6 through verse 10, is the method of worship under the old. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duty. First section meaning what? The holy place. And what did they do? Well, they changed the bread, a presence. They add and keep a supply of oil in the menorah. They keep a supply of incense in the altar of incense. So they're constantly doing that. That's all he's saying. Verse 7. But in the second only, what's that mean? The most holy place, the high priest goes, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So before the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, he offers sacrifice for himself and for the people's sins, unintentional sins. Verse 8, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. Now, when the author wrote this book, the temple still was standing in Jerusalem. And that's what he's saying. But he add, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing. So as long as that's still standing, who's going to knock it down? Jesus. In his death, burial, and resurrection. Verse 7. According to, uh, or verse, uh, yeah, verse um, 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of reformation. You'll underline that. I want you to notice something about verse 9. The old system, it atones for sin. It takes care of sin. That's what the high priest is doing to skin the holy place. Holy of holies. What does he mean it cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper? That's an, that's an interesting statement. We just talked about it before. One of the differences being trying to get into your heart. Just because you offer the sacrifice, you think, okay, cool, I'll go back and do it again. It's not, it's the old system doesn't transform you from the inside out. It doesn't transform your heart. doesn't transform your conscience. Now, that doesn't mean that's not important to God. It, it doesn't mean that. It is important to God. But the old system didn't do that. Listen, let, let's put it another way. The old system is an external thing. It's how you are going through these sacrifices, or whatever the element in this case, sacrifices, to as a, as a way in which God atones for your sin. You do it constantly. The high priest goes in once a year. But for you to be transformed from the inside out, that system doesn't do that. That's not what it was intended to do. That doesn't mean that's unimportant, because Jeremiah 4.4 4 talks about God wants you to be circumcised in your heart. What does that mean? Transformed from the inside out. God wants, you, God wants that for you. You Jews, 
1000 BC, that's what God wants. The old system was a way in which God would atone for your sin. Blood is shed, it covers for you, so another year, okay. But that doesn't affect your heart and conscience. Is that important to God? Yes, but you, you, you have to choose that this is what you would like God to do. So, it's waiting for a time of reformation. A future era. And that time of reformation is what the new covenant's all about. So a time of reformation implies that there's something deficient about the old. Verse 11, he starts to talk about the time of reformation, the coming of Christ, and what Jesus did. Go ahead. So how does this reformation tie with Martin Luther? It doesn't. <laughs> Only in the sense that Luther um, is challenging, um, I'm not sure I want to get in that money trouble, but is challenging what the institutionalized Roman Catholic Church had done to the gospel. So he wants to take, he wants to take the church back to its roots. And so um, that so there's not much of a parallel <laughs> in that sense. What's the first word of verse 11? But. But. Now the contrast is now established between the old and the new. The old is this. This system. Holy place, most holy place, veil separated to the mercy seat, all of that. But. When Christ appeared as our high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with human hands, that is, not of his creation, he entered once for all. That's a key phrase in the book of Hebrews. Once for all. If you do things like this in your Bible, underline that, circle it. That is the key phrase. Once for all. Jesus sacrifices once for all. We don't have to offer sacrificial animals anymore. Now, I want to turn to this. This is the flip side of the, the sheet that I just gave you. This summarizes, and in your, if you're following in your notes, uh, there is five points made in these verses. These are the five points. But what he's, I, I entitled it this way. This is a PowerPoint slide that I use when I teach. Uh, he was using PowerPoint. Anyway, five inferiorities of the tabernacle, of this whole system, five inferiorities of the old covenant, five inferiorities of the Mosaic covenant. It's not saying five problems. It's not saying it. It's inferior when you compare it to the new covenant. So just, I mean, just itemize these. And I'm using this, the scripture references from the first 10 verses of chapter 9, which we've just finished studying. Number one, it was an earthly sanctuary. Number two, it was a type patterned after the heavenly one. It was inaccessible to the people. Who was the only one who could access it? The high priest. Nobody else could access it. It was temporary. We just learned that. And number five, its ministry of sacrifice was merely external, never solving the problem of the heart. That was the phrase that, that Glenn used. 
It never solves that problem. Now, if you look at number five, and just think about that for just a little bit, you can see how the Pharisees, by the time of Jesus, are really, really camp on this. It's external. You go through the motions. You keep the Sabbath. And if you break the Sabbath, you've broken the whole law. And, and that's why they're so concerned about what Jesus is doing. Do you think it was a coincidence that Jesus did most of his miracles on the Sabbath? It was just random. Well, I think I'll do a miracle today. What day is it? Oh, it's so good, I'll do it. No. What Jesus is doing is he's challenging the Pharisaic interpretation of the Sabbath. And so Jesus will heal a man on the Sabbath. And that man will pick up his mat that he was on for 38 years and walk away. What did the Pharisees charge that man with? Breaking the Sabbath. You're working on the Sabbath. And Jesus pulls his hair. I'm making that up. He really doesn't. But Jesus goes, how can you argue that? You mean to tell me God is not interested in helping that man? Showing compassion to that man? Doing something to that man that you can't do? Sorry. My phone making so much noise. I'll turn it off. Well, the reason is, is they were more interested in the external than the matter of the heart. And that's why Jesus is so hard on these guys. They've taken an aspect of the old covenant and prostituted it into the major issue. You adhere to the stipulations of the Old Covenant because that earns favor with God. That is not what the old system taught. And so it, you can see how this will quickly deteriorate into a Pharisaic legalism that Jesus will challenge. And that's why, well, I won't say that because we're going to get into that here in just a minute. So let's talk a little bit about verse... Um, in, in, in the middle of verse 11. Christ appeared as a high priest to a greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, and entered once for all into the holy places. What is that telling us? That in heaven, there's a perfect tabernacle. Now, we don't, it's, it's quarter of, so we don't have time to do this. So if you go back and look at the book of Exodus, and when God is giving instructions to Moses of how he wants the tabernacle built, the text tells us that God showed him a picture of what the perfect tabernacle in heaven looked like. And so Moses then, give, God gives him all of the specific details, the measurements, what it looks like, modeled after the tabernacle that's in heaven. So when Jesus, when it says, he once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats or calves, but by means of his own blood, he sprinkled his blood on the mercy seat in heaven, thus securing an eternal redemption. So what you should do is once for all, in the middle of verse 12, should connect with eternal redemption at the end of verse 12. His once-for-all sacrifice purchased eternal redemption. Redemption means to buy, to purchase. So it's, it's, it's a, phenomenal, a phenomenal item 
for a Jewish person to wrestle with. Jesus, your Messiah, died a perfect death, securing a perfect redemption that's eternal. You don't have to do what you're doing anymore. It's been completed. You don't have to go to Jerusalem and offer sacrifices anymore. It's been completed. And you remember, um, I've got to finish this now because of time, but remember Mark's gospel tells us when Jesus died on the cross, what happened to the curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place? It tore in half. Why is that so significant? I mean, to a Jewish person, you would think, oh my goodness, I really understand what happened now. But, you know, they push back on that. But it means that Christ's work completed. It's a once-for-all sacrifice. Now, it's not just the priest who has access. Who has access? Everybody. Do you remember how revolutionary that is? Everybody has access to God now because of what Jesus did. And so the author setting us up for understanding in a greater detail the depths of the new covenant. I mean, it's just, it's really exciting. I think it is, because it just, you see, everything in the Old Testament is completed. Oh, now I understand. I understand all of that, and how Jesus is the bridge between the two. Praise God. Yeah, amen. I mean, it really is, it's, it brings the unity to the Bible. And why Jesus is right, and that's why that medieval monk in the 600s put the cross as a bifurcating point of history. B.C. A.D., he's right. History changes. Because of the cross. Now the cross is just a piece of jewelry that pagans and atheists and everybody wears. They have no idea what it means. But it is the most important symbol for you and me. We did a lot today. Are you hanging with me? I mean, I told you Hebrews is a lot of theology, but it really, it's a blessing to study it because you really see how the two covenants are connected. So don't lose this stuff. We're not done with it. And if you can resurrect this for next week, uh, what's in your your notes on page 18, I think it is, the chart that compares the old and the new, I want to deal with that at the end of this chapter to tie it all together. One, one thing, for, I got a note from Fred. Oh. He's asking that, uh, he's asking for prayers that he has the opportunity to share Christ with his high school. With whom? His high school. Oh, oh, that's right, he's in a, a 60th reunion. That's right, that's right. All right, let's, let's, well, let me pray here and we'll, we'll uh, get, get into the rest of our day. Father, thank you for the book of Hebrews and thank you for these men that are uh, willing to come and study it with me. I hope this is a blessing to them. It's hard. It, it is. This is a difficult book theologically, but as we work our way step by step through it, we do see the connection between the old and the new and how Jesus is the bridge, fulfilling the old, making it obsolete, and inaugurating the new. What a, what a magnificent work Jesus did for us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for willingness to come, to add to your deity humanity, and go to the cross and die for us, purchase eternal redemption through the shedding of your blood. And Heavenly Father, thank you through your spirit as you resurrected Jesus, Romans 1 tells us, to victory, paid the penalty, conquered death, and now is ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. Thank you for those grand truths of our faith. As we go our separate ways, help us to be nourished and strengthened through the study of the Word of God together, and then, Lord, help us to represent you well. 
to a world that desperately needs the message of Jesus and what he does in transforming us from the inside out. To your glory we pray. Amen. Amen. See you next week.